Chapter Twenty Nine, Part One, of the Voyages of the Beagle. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Lucy Burgoyne. The Voyages of the Beagle by Charles Darwin, Chapter Twenty Nine, Part One. Australia, January twelfth, eighteen thirty-six. Early in the morning, a light air carried us towards the entrance of Port Jackson. Instead of beholding a verdant country, interspersed with fine houses, a straight line of yellowish cliff brought to our minds the coast of Patagonia. A solitary lighthouse built of white stone alone told us. That we were near a great and populous city, having entered the harbour, it appears fine and spacious, with cliff-formed shores of horizontally stratified sandstone. The nearly level country is covered with thin scrubby trees, bespeaking the curse of sterility. Proceeding further inland, the country improves. Beautiful villas and nice cottages are here and there. Scattered along the beach, in the distance, stone houses, two and three stories high, and windmills standing on the edge of a bank, pointed out to us the neighbourhood of the capital of Australia. At last, we anchored within Sydney Cove. We found the little basin occupied by many large ships, and surrounded by warehouses. In the evening, I walked through the town, and returned full of admiration at the whole scene. It is a most magnificent testimony to the power of the British nation. Here, in a less promising country, scores of years have done many more times more than an equal number of centuries having effected in South America. My first feeling was to congratulate myself that I was born an Englishman. Upon seeing more of the town afterwards, perhaps my admiration fell a little, but yet it is a fine town. The streets are regular, broad, clean, and kept in excellent order. The houses are of a good size, and the shops well furnished. It may be faithfully compared to the large suburbs which stretch out from London, and a few other great towns in England, but not even near London or Birmingham is there an appearance of such rapid growth. The number of large houses and other buildings just finished was truly surprising. Nevertheless, every one complained of the high rents and difficulty in procuring. A house, coming from South America, where in the towns every man of property is known, no one thing surprised me more than not being able to ascertain at once to whom this or that carriage belonged. I hired a man and two horses to take me to Bathurst, a village about one hundred and twenty miles in the interior, and the centre of a great pastoral district. By this means, I hoped to gain a general idea of the appearance of the country. On the morning of the sixteenth, January, I set out 
on my excursion. The first stage took us to Parramatta, a small country town next to Sydney in importance. The roads were excellent, and made upon the Macadam principle, winestone having been brought for the purpose from the distance of several miles. In all respects there was a close resemblance to England. Perhaps the alehouses here were more numerous. The iron gangs, or parties of convicts, who have committed here some offence, appeared the least like England. They were working in chains, under the charge of sentries, with loaded arms. The power which the government possesses, by means of forced labour, of at once opening good roads throughout the country, has been, I believe, one main cause of the early prosperity of this colony. I slept at night at a very comfortable inn at Emu Ferry, thirty-five miles from Sydney, and near the ascent of the Blue Mountains. This line of road is the most frequented, and has been the longest inhabited of any in the colony. The whole land is enclosed with high railings, for the farmers have not succeeded in rearing hedges. There are many substantial houses and good cottages scattered about, but although considerable pieces of land are under cultivation, the greater part yet remains as when first discovered. The extreme uniformity of the vegetation is the most remarkable feature in the landscape of the greater part of New South Wales. Everywhere we have an open woodland, the ground being partially covered with a very thin pasture, with little appearance of verdure. The trees nearly all belong to one family, and mostly have their leaves placed in a vertical, instead of as in Europe, in a nearly horizontal position. The foliage is scanty, and of a peculiar pale green tint, without any gloss. Hence the woods appear light and shadowless, this although a loss of comfort to the traveller under the scorching rays of summer, is of importance to the farmer, and it allows grass to grow where it otherwise would not. The leaves are not shed periodically. This character appears common to the entire southern hemisphere, namely South America, Australia, and the Cape of Good Hope. The inhabitants of this hemisphere and of the intertropical regions thus lose perhaps one of the most glorious, though to our eyes common, spectacles in the world, the first bursting into full foliage of the leafless tree. They may, however, say that we pay dearly for this by having the land covered with mere naked skeletons for so many months. This is too true, but our senses thus acquire a keen relish for the exquisite green of the spring, which the eyes of those living within the tropics sat at during the long year with the gorgeous productions of those glowing climates, can never experience. The greater number of the trees, with the exception of some of the blue gums, do not attain a large size but they grow tall and tolerably straight, and stand well apart. The bark of some of the eucalypti, 
falls annually, or hangs dead in long shreds which swing about with the wind, and give to the woods a desolate and untidy appearance. I cannot imagine a more complete contrast, in every respect, than between the forests of Valdivia or Chilo, and the woods of Australia. At sunset, a party of a score of the black aborigines pass by, each carrying, in their accustomed manner, a bundle of spears and other weapons. By giving a leading young man a shilling, they were easily detained, and threw their spears for my amusement. They were all partly clothed, and several could speak a little English. Their countenances were good-humoured and pleasant, and they appeared far from being such utterly degraded beings as they have usually been represented. In their own arts they are admirable. A cap being fixed at thirty yards' distance, they transfixed it with a spear, delivered by the throwing stick with the rapidity of an arrow from the bow of a practised archer. In tracking animals or men, they show most wonderful sagacity, and I heard of several of their remarks which manifested considerable acuteness. They will not, however, cultivate the ground, or build houses and remain stationary, or even take the trouble of tending a flock of sheep when given to them. On the whole, they appear to me to stand some few degrees higher in the scale of civilization than the Fugians. It is very curious thus to see, in the midst of a civilized people, a set of harmless savages wandering about without knowing where they shall sleep at night, and gaining their livelihood by hunting in the woods. As the white man has travelled onwards, he has spread over the country belonging to several tribes. These, although thus enclosed by one common people, keep up their ancient distinctions, and sometimes go to war with each other. In an engagement which took place lately, the two parties most singularly chose the centre of the village of Bathurst for the field of battle. This was of service to the defeated side, for the runaway warriors took refuge in the barracks. The number of aborigines is rapidly decreasing. In my whole ride, with the exception of some boys brought up by Englishmen, I saw only one other party. This decrease, no doubt, must be partly owing to the introduction of spirits, to European diseases even the milder ones of which, such as the measles, prove very destructive, and to the gradual extinction of the wild animals. It is said that numbers of their children invariably perish in very early infancy from the effects of their wandering life, and as the difficulty of procuring food increases, so must their wandering habits increase, and hence the population without any apparent deaths from famine, is repressed in a manner extremely sudden compared to what happens in civilized countries, where the father, though in adding to his labor he may injure himself, does not destroy his offspring. 
Footnote. It is remarkable how the same disease is modified in different climates. At the little island of St. Helena, the introduction of scarlet fever is dreaded as a plague. In some countries, foreigners and natives are as differently affected by certain contagious disorders as if they had been different animals, of which fact some instances have occurred in Chile, and, according to Hamboldt, in Mexico, Polite Essay, New Spain, Volume 4. End of footnote. Besides the several evident causes of destruction, there appears to be some more mysterious agency generally at work. Wherever the European has trod, death seems to pursue the Aboriginal. We may look to the wide extent of the Americas, Polynesia, the Cape of Good Hope, and Australia, and we find the same result. Nor is it the white man alone that thus acts the destroyer. The Polynesian of Malay extraction has in parts of the East Indian archipelago, those driven before him the dark-coloured native. The varieties of man seem to act on each other in the same way as different species of animals, the stronger always extirpating the weaker. It was melancholy at New Zealand to hear the fine energetic natives saying that they knew the land was doomed to pass from their children. Everyone has heard of the inexplicable reduction of the population in the beautiful and healthy island of Tahiti since the date of Captain Cook's voyages, although in that case we might have expected that it would have been increased, for infant aside, which formerly prevailed to so extraordinary a degree, has ceased, prolificacy has greatly diminished, and the murderous wars become less frequent. The Reverend J. Williams, in his interesting work, says that the first intercourse between natives and Europeans is invariably attended with the introduction of fever, dysentery, or some other disease, which carries off numbers of the people. Again, he affirms, it is certainly a fact which cannot be controverted, that most of the diseases which have raged in the islands during the residence there have been introduced by ships, and what renders this fact remarkable is that there might be no appearance of disease among the crew of the ship which conveyed this destructive importation. This statement is not quite so extraordinary as it at first appears for several cases are on record of the most malignant fevers having broken out, although the parties themselves, who were the cause, were not affected. In the early part of the reign of George III, a prisoner who had been confined in a dungeon was taken in a coach with four constables before a magistrate, and although the man himself was not ill, the four constables died from a short putrid fever, but the contagion extended to no others. From these facts it would almost appear as if the effluvium of one set of men 
shut up for some time together, was poisonous when inhaled by others, and possibly more so, if the men be of different races. Mysterious as this circumstance appears to be, it is not more surprising than that the body of one's fellow-creature, directly after death, and before putrefaction has commenced, should often be of so deleterious a quality that the mere puncture from an instrument used in its dissection should prove fatal. Footnote. Narrative of Missionary Enterprise, page 282. End of footnote. Footnote. Captain Beachy, chapter 4, volume 1, states that the inhabitants of Pitcairn Island are firmly convinced that after the arrival of every ship they suffer cuteness and other disorders. Captain Beachy attributes this to the change of diet during the time of the visit. Dr. McCulloch, Western Isles, Volume 2, page 32, says, It is asserted that on the arrival of a stranger at St. Kilda, all the inhabitants in the common phraseology catch a cold. Dr. McCulloch considers the whole case, although often previously affirmed, as ludicrous. He adds, however, that the question was put by us to the inhabitants who unanimously agreed in the story. In Vancouver's voyage there is a somewhat similar statement with respect to Otterhaite. Dr. Dyfenbach, in a note to his translation of the journal, states that the same fact is universally believed by the inhabitants of the Chatham Islands and in parts of New Zealand. It is impossible that such a belief should have become universal in the Northern Hemisphere, at the Antipodes and in the Pacific, without some good foundation. Humboldt, polite essay on King of New Spain, volume 4, says that the great epidemics of Panama and Calio are marked by the arrival of ships from Chile, because the people from that temperate region first experience the fatal effects of the torrid zones. I may add that I have heard it stated in Shropshire that sheep, which have been imported from vessels, although themselves in a healthy condition, if placed in the same fold with others, frequently produce sickness in the flock. End of footnote. Seventeenth. Early in the morning we passed the Nepean in a ferry boat. The river, although at this spot both broad and deep, had a very small body of running water. Having crossed a low piece of land on the opposite side, we reached the slope of the Blue Mountains. The ascent is not steep, the road having been cut with much care on the side of a sandstone cliff. On the summit an almost level plain extends, which, rising imperceptibly to the westward, at last attains a height of more than 3,000 feet. From so grand a title as Blue Mountains, and from their absolute altitude, 
I expected to have seen a bold chain of mountains crossing the country, but instead of this a sloping plain presents merely an inconsiderable front to the low land near the coast. From this first slope the view of the extensive woodland to the east was striking, and the surrounding trees grew bold and lofty, but when once on the sandstone platform the scenery becomes exceedingly monotonous. Each side of the road is bordered by scrubby trees of the never-failing eucalyptus family, and with the exception of two or three small inns there are no houses or cultivated land. The road, moreover, is solitary, the most frequent object being a bullock wagon, piled up with bales of wool. In the middle of the day we baited our horses at a little inn, called the Weatherboard. The country here is elevated 2,800 feet above the sea. About a mile and a half from this place there is a view exceedingly well worth visiting following down a little valley and its tiny rill of water, an immense gulf unexpectedly opens through the trees which border the pathway, at the depth of perhaps fifteen hundred feet. Walking on a few yards, one stands on the brink of a vast precipice, and below one sees a grand bay or gulf, for I know not what other name to give it thickly covered with forest. The point of view is situated as if at the head of the bay, the line of cliff diverging on each side, and showing headland behind headland, as on a bold sea coast. These cliffs are composed of horizontal strata of whitish sandstone, and are absolutely vertical, and in many places a person standing on the edge and throwing down a stone, can see it strike the trees in the abyss below. So unbroken is the line of cliff, that in order to reach the foot of the waterfall, formed by this little stream, it is said to be necessary to go sixteen miles round. About five miles distant, in front, another line of cliff extends, which thus appears completely to encircle the valley and hence the name a bay is justified, as applied to this grand amphitheatrical depression. If we imagine a winding harbour, with its deep water surrounded by bold cliff-like shores, to be laid dry, and a forest to spring up on its sandy bottom, we should then have the appearance and structure here exhibited. This kind of view was to me quite novel, and extremely magnificent. In the evening we reached the Black Heath. The sandstone plateau has here attained the height of 3,400 feet, and is covered, as before, with the same scrubby woods. From the road there were occasional glimpses into a profound valley, of the same character as the one described, but from the steepness and depth of its sides, the bottom was scarcely even to be seen. The Black Heath is a very comfortable inn, kept by an old soldier, and it reminded me of the small inns in North Wales. 18th. Very early in the morning I walked about three miles,
to see Gobbett sleep, a view of a similar character, with that near the weatherboard, but perhaps even more stupendous. So early in the day the gulf was filled with a thin blue haze, which, although destroying the general effect of the view, added to the apparent depth at which the forest was stretched out beneath our feet. These valleys, which so long presented an insuperable barrier to the attempts of the most enterprising of the colonists to reach the interior, are most remarkable. Great arm-like bays, expanding at their upper ends, often branch from the main valleys and penetrate the sandstone platform. On the other hand, the platform often sends promontories into the valleys, and even leaves in them great, almost insulated masses. To descend into some of these valleys, it is necessary to go round twenty miles, and into others. The surveyors have only lately penetrated, and the colonists have not yet been able to drive in their cattle. But the most remarkable feature in their structure is, that although several miles wide at their heads, they generally contract towards their mouths to such a degree as to become impassable. The surveyor-general, Sir T. Mitchell, endeavoured in vain, first walking and then by crawling between the great fallen fragments of sandstone, to ascend through the gorge by which the river Gross joins the Nepean. Yet the valley of the Gross, in its upper part, as I saw, forms a magnificent level basin some miles in width, and is on all sides surrounded by cliffs, the summits of which are believed to be nowhere less than three thousand feet above the level of the sea. When cattle are driven into the valley of the Wolgan by a path which I descended, partly natural and partly made by the owner of the land, they cannot escape for this valley is in every other part surrounded by perpendicular cliffs, and eight miles lower down it contracts from an average width of half a mile to a mere chasm, impassable to man or beast. Sir T. Mitchell states that the great valley of the Cox River, with all its branches, contracts where it unites with the Nepean into a gorge 2,200 yards in width, and about 1,000 feet in depth. Other similar cases might have been added. Footnote. Travels in Australia, Volume 1, page 154. I must express my obligation to Sir T. Mitchell for several interesting personal communications on the subject of these great valleys of New South Wales. End of footnote. The first impression on seeing the correspondence of the horizontal strata on each side of these valleys and great amphitheatrical depressions is that they have been hollowed out, like other valleys, by the action of water, but when one reflects on the enormous amount of stone, which on this view must have been removed, through mere gorges or chasms, one is led to ask whether these faces may not have subsided. 
but considering the form of the irregularly branching valleys and of the narrow promontories projecting into them from the platforms, we are compelled to abandon this notion, to attribute these hollows to the present alluvial action would be preposterous, nor does the drainage from the summit level always fall, as I remark near the weatherboard into the head of these valleys, but into one side of their bay like recesses. Some of the inhabitants remarked to me that they never viewed one of those bay-like recesses, with the headlands receding on both hands, without being struck with their resemblance to a bold sea coast. This is certainly the case, moreover, on the present coast of New South Wales, the numerous, fine, widely branching harbours, which are generally connected with the sea by a narrow mouth worn through the sandstone coast cliffs, varying from one mile in width to a quarter of a mile present a likeness, though on a miniature scale, to the great valleys of the interior. But then immediately occurs the startling difficulty. Why has the sea worn out this great, though circumscribed, depressions on a wide platform, and left mere gorges at openings, through which the whole vast amount of triturated matter must have been carried away. The only light I can throw upon this enigma is by remarking that banks of the most irregular forms appear to be now forming in some seas, as in parts of the West Indies and in the Red Sea, and that their sides are exceedingly steep. Such banks, I have been led to suppose, have been formed by sediment heaped by strong currents on an irregular bottom, that in some cases the sea, instead of spreading out sediment in a uniform sheet, heaps it round submarine rocks and islands. It is hardly possible to doubt, after examining the charts of the West Indies, and that the waves have power to form high and precipitous cliffs. Even in landlocked harbours, I have noticed in many parts of South America. To apply these ideas to the sandstone platforms of New South Wales, I imagine that the strata were heaped by the action of strong currents, and of the undulations of an open sea, on an irregular bottom, and that the valley-like spaces thus left unfilled had their steeply sloping flanks worn into cliffs during a slow elevation of the land, the worn-down sandstone being removed, either at the time when the narrow gorges were cut by the retreating sea, or subsequently by alluvial action. Soon after leaving the Blackheath, we descended from the sandstone platform by the pass of Mount Victoria. To effect this pass, an enormous quantity of stone has been cut through, the design and its manner of execution being worthy of any line of road in England. We now entered upon a country less elevated by nearly a thousand feet, and consisting of granite. With the change of rock, the vegetation improved, the trees were both finer and stood farther apart, and the pasture between them was a little greener and more plentiful. At Hazen's Walls, 
I left the high road, and made a short detour to a farm called Wollawong, to the superintendent of which I had a letter of introduction from the owner in Sydney. Mr. Brown had the kindness to ask me to stay the ensuing day, which I had much pleasure in doing. This place offers an example of one of the large farming, or rather sheep grazing, establishments of the colony. Cattle and horses are, however, in this case rather more numerous than usual, owing to some of the valleys being swampy and producing a coarser pasture. Two or three flat pieces of ground near the house were cleared and cultivated with corn, which the harvest men were now reaping, but no more wheat is sown than sufficient for the annual support of the labourers employed on the establishment. The usual number of assigned convict servants here is about forty, but at the present time there were rather more. Although the farm was well stocked with every necessary, there was an apparent absence of comfort, and not one single woman resided here. The sunset of a fine day will generally cast an air of happy contentment on any scene, but here, at this retired farmhouse, the brightest tints on the surrounding woods could not make me forget that forty hardened, profligate men were ceasing from their daily labours, like the slaves from Africa, yet without their holy claim for compassion. Early on the next morning, Mr. Archer, the joint superintendent, had the kindness to take me out kangaroo hunting. We continued riding the greater part of the day, but had very bad sport, not seeing a kangaroo or even a wild dog. The greyhounds pursued a kangaroo rat into a hollow tree, out of which we dragged it. It is an animal as large as a rabbit, but with the figure of a kangaroo. A few years since this country abounded with wild animals, but now the emu is banished to a long distance, and the kangaroo is become scarce, to both the English greyhound has been highly destructive. It may be long before these animals are altogether exterminated, but their doom is fixed. The Aborigines are always anxious to borrow the dogs from the farmhouses, the use of them, the offal when an animal is killed, and some milk from the cows are the peace offerings of the settlers, who push farther and farther towards the interior. The thoughtless Aboriginal blinded by these trifling advantages, is delighted at the approach of the white man, who seems predestined to inherit the country of his children. Although having poor sport, we enjoyed a pleasant ride. The woodland is generally so open that a person on horseback can gallop through it. It is traversed by a few flat-bottomed valleys, which are green and free from trees. In such spots the scenery was pretty like that of a park. In the whole country I scarcely saw a place without the marks of a fire. Whether these had been more or less recent, whether the stumps were more or less black, was the greatest change which varied the uniformity so wearisome to the traveller's eye. 
In these woods there are not many birds. I saw, however, some large flocks of the white cockatoo feeding in a cornfield, and a few most beautiful parrots, crows, like our jackdaws, were not uncommon, and another bird something like the magpie. In the dusk of the evening I took a stroll along a chain of ponds, which in this dry country represented the course of a river, and had the good fortune to see several of the famous Ornithorhynchus paradoxus. They were diving and playing about the surface of the water, but showed so little of their bodies, that they might easily have been mistaken for water rats. Mr. Brown shot one. Certainly it is a most extraordinary animal. A stuffed specimen does not at all give a good idea of the appearance of the head and beak when fresh, the latter becoming hard and contracted. Footnote. I was interested by finding here the hollow conical pitfall of the lion ant, or some other insect. First a fly fell down the treacherous slope, and immediately disappeared. Then came a large but unwary ant, its struggles to escape being very violent. Those curious little jets of sand, described by Kirby and Spence, Entomol, Volume 1, page 425, as being flirted by the insect's tail, were promptly directed against the expected victim. But the ant enjoyed a better fate than the fly, and escaped the fatal jaws which lay concealed at the base of the conical hollow. This Australian pitfall was only about half the size of that made by the European lion ant. End of footnote. End of chapter 29, part 1.